So I have, as you know, recently started this low waste, semi zero waste journey. And I literally today, okay, so I'm saving all the glass jars that I get, you know, pasta sauce, Mm -hmm. salsa, like all those things. I found these new canning jars and I went and bought one and then I've got my little metal Tiffin thing. And like, I understand these things are totally not necessary at all because as long as you just like reuse what you have, like that's the whole point. But like, they make me really excited. I mean, okay, so... One of the reasons, like, I try try to minimize the waste I can, although I don't honestly put in as much effort as I should, or even that much effort, like, let's be real. But when I look up zero waste kind of stuff, I always see people, like, you see the, the one woman from BuzzFeed who, like, all my trash from this last year fits in this jar that I carry around to shame myself with. And I'm like, okay, literally how? So... Like, I, I can understand, like... You use a Ziploc for something, wash it out and reuse it. Or, you know, you're done with your pasta sauce. Boom, I have, you know, now a soup container for lunch or whatever. You know, reusing things on, like, that level and stuff. Or or even, like, you know, I've got, you know, this container. I'm going to go to the bulk aisle in the grocery store and fill it up. Cool. But, like, everything I touch makes trash. No, it doesn't have to. So first thing I want to say, the whole like all my trash is in this jar is like, it's stupid. Because I mean, yes, if people want to do that, that's fine. I support that. However, you have to think of like... It's stupid, but I support it. (laughs) But you have to think of the downline of the things you do and the actions you take. And like, there's no way all of the trash you create is in that one thing. Like, this is like, not true. Like, even think about this fact. You go to a public restroom and you use, use toilet paper. That's trash. You're not putting God, it in your jar. What does she use for toilet paper? Well, does they, she have, like, a rag? No, no, she doesn't have a rag. She probably has a bidet. Well, I mean, like, when she's... Does she hold it when she's at work? But that's what I'm saying. That's, that's my exact point. Yeah. Like, there is other trash that you create. But the whole idea is to just minimize and do the best you can breathing creates waste like you know c2o (laughs) doesn't create that (laughs) i mean co2 whatever (laughs) this is not a science lesson okay this is not a science podcast okay (laughs) i mean but we're not not sciencey we do not create dicarbon monoxide i think we would all die (laughs) all right good job see you you caught the error anyway So, like, essentially the only way to be zero waste is to be dead. So, like, it doesn't make sense. But basically the point is to try to do the best you can. And I'm just excited to be on this journey and, like, trying. Because when you think about it, when you try to live less wasteful, you buy less processed foods because it comes in packaging that you can't recycle. So you buy fresh fruit. You buy meat from the butcher. You buy, like, your grains in bulk. I don't even know where a butcher is. At the H-E-B. Oh, I guess that counts. They'd probably put it in a plastic bag. It'd be like, here's no. your, I don't know, ham hock, or I don't know what you buy from the book. Here's your handful of meat. They weigh it on the scale, and then they put it in a plastic bag. But if you ha- you bring a container and say, put my meat in this. Could you put it in this Tupperware for me? <laughs> exactly. Like, it may be, like, a little bit uncomfortable at times when you first start doing it. But once you do it, like... Honestly, it's a good thing to do. I mean, yeah. One of the things that I um, 
that annoys me most about like about Austin as compared to Seattle is the fact that composting is just not a thing. And I feel yeah. super weird when I'm like throwing my banana peel in the garbage. And I'm like, if I could just put this in the compost. So, okay. Also, one last fact on banana peels. Did you know that when you are um, like hiking and stuff, you know, oftentimes you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to bring an orange. I'm going to eat it. I'll toss the orange peel because it will like biodegrade. Not really. So like, a lo- because of a lot of like the pesticides and processing and stuff, most like fruits don't biodegrade as quickly as we think. And also it can be not a good thing to like introduce non-native things to like the diets. You know, these squirrels that have never eaten an orange before go into town on it could die. I don't know. I saw a news article on like National Geographic about it the other day. No, it's true. And one thing that I read today that was really interesting has to do with how... Eat your fucking banana peels. <laughs> no, that, that that's not what I read. Um, <laughs> but no, it was just saying how when you throw away food scraps in your trash can along with like papers and plastics and other stuff, it all gets thrown into the landfill and none of it is decomposing because... It's, like, creating this environment. Oh, yeah. It's, like, um, like I think anaerobic, where there's not oxygen, so it just makes, like, a shit ton of methane. Yeah, and that's the greenhouse gases. But you can go to some landfills and see food that was thrown away in the 50s that doesn't look decomposed at all. That's so gross. But enough about landfills. That's a topic for another time. Honestly, um, absolutely. (laughs) Bodies found in landfills. Um, Landfill murder victims. Hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And uh, we're not going to go to the nearest landfill for a multitude of reasons. Yes, yes. Because we would breathe in C2O. (laughs) Um, Sure. Too much of it. Sure. (laughs) And if we were jogging, we might even find a landfill body. Maybe don't jog at the landfill. I mean, again, for a multitude of reasons. But anyways, hello everyone. I hope y'all are having a wonderful day, evening, night, whenever y'all are listening to this. Yes. Whatever your preferred time to listen to podcasts are. Um, I have an update on my evolving of starting to listen to podcasts. Yes, we are on episode 72. Yes, I don't listen to podcasts, and it's taken me almost a year from starting our own to start really listening to ones, but I found this podcast from the Wall Street Journal called The Journal that it's like 17 to 25 minute episodes. They go over just like, I don't know, like headline things and explain them and kind of break them down. So one of the recent ones um, dove into uh, PNG and the California wildfires and kind of like an investigation into like the company, why this happened and why it's not really been fixed kind of things. You know, another right. one went into like uh, some of the companies around the opioid crisis, different things like that. Really interesting. It's what I listen to on my commute now. I mean, that does sound really interesting. And stories like that, like news podcasts that are just reporting on these things that we hear about on a daily basis, but doing that deep dive, those are fascinating and perfect for a commute if you're, you know, all caught up on hours. True. Well, <laughs> and also uh, the two hosts, 
I love their voices. I News people, I feel like, have just a very specific voice that, I mean, for as not soothing as the news and the topics are, their voices, I'm like, oh, I could fall asleep listening to this. News voices are fantastic. But they're not as fantastic as our amazing Patreoners. True. Was that a... Was that a was that a good transition? Because it's the one I'm going with. Um, but yes, if you haven't heard of Patreon, I I don't know where you go for the first ten minutes of each episode because we mention it every time. But Patreon is our uh, one of our fan sites where you can go, uh, you can support us, and by supporting us, you get access to a bunch of really awesome different things like our murder mini episodes, our bottle talk episodes. Depending on your level of support, you get access to a bunch of different rewards, ranging from being a director of your own episode to signed uh, thank you cards from our handwritten thank you cards. But we also sign them. <laughs> we do. Um, <laughs> you get both. And all of our Patreon supporters are awesome, amazing people. Y'all are the ones who, um, you know, by supporting us... Y'all are helping us get this podcast to you, helping us make it better all the time. So, y'all rock stars. Yes, and better and better is our goal. Um, while you're at it, make sure you've subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also on Spotify. Go check us out there and subscribe so you get notified of our newest episodes. Without further ado, this week's topic... So I lost. That was an lo- interesting way of saying it, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. So last week I lost. So I picked a topic, and you know there are a lot of unsolved. <laughs> Do I know? <laughs> there are a lot of unsolved crimes and murders out there, but sometimes the victim literally just disappears without a trace. Sometimes there's not really evidence. Sometimes the cases go extremely cold. And sometimes there is information, but it never leads investigators to anything. So this week's topic, we're going to go over some cases where the victims literally disappeared without a trace. Makes me think of, oh my god, wasn't there a show on like CBS without a trace? I feel like that was a show. It feels like (laughs) a show. I don't think I fever dreamed that. I don't think you did either, but I'm wondering, was it, did it have to do with like crime and stuff? It either was like a CSI type show with i i in my head it has like one of the sisters from charmed as the main person or it could have been a ghost show but i think that was ghost whisperer with the other one from charmed so i think without a trace was a crime show it was a crime show it was on cbs Um, Oh my god, I am so good. (laughs) So it was about the missing person squad of the FBI investigation unit in New York City. So When was it? It was actually in the early 2000s. So it started in 02 and ended in 09. Okay, so it's not that impressive that I know that's only 10 years ago that it ended. It's true. I mean, you were making it sound like it was something from the 80s. I was not alive then, so I wouldn't have remembered that, but okay. But sometimes you know things. Anyway, so that's the topic we're going to go into, and it's it's really eerie. The the mystery that surrounds cases like this with no answers. It's it's aggravating and honestly a little scary. A lot of the stuff we talk about is really scary, so. Well, and it's also one of those things that 
I feel like most of these cases always kind of boil down to it would be completely forgotten about if, like, people stopped looking. Because it's not something that there's last, you know, because of what it is, there's not this lasting evidence. There's not pieces to remember it. It's literally the people that are still doing the searching and trying are the only reason why it's known. Well, and that even goes for cases where there is a body discovered. A lot of the times it will be forgotten if someone stops looking. And like... I guess that's true. I guess that goes for a lot of criminal cases. Um, It it does. And I mean, the investigators keep the file, you know, unless it's gone cold. They've got the file there. And even the cold cases, they still have it. But as more things happen and more things get on top of it, it just gets buried. And so it just, a lot of the times we've talked in multiple cases where the family is like the advocate for trying to solve this and how that can be Mm -hmm. extremely helpful. Yeah. Well, before we get into our specific cases, let's open up our wine and talk about our wine and taste our wine and drink a little bit of it before we get into this. I like all of those things. (laughs) All right, good. The wine I picked for this episode is the 2017 Reniki Weinhugger Red Blend from South Africa. And Reniki Vineyards believes that, like, there's a lot to be said for the way winemaking used to be done. Chemicals weren't used, no technological advancements that made the process a, a process. And basically, the balance of that that whole process, that's what was important, not how much wine you're going to sell. Are you about to drink some basement wine? <laughs> it's not basement wine, but they make their wines um, with an herbicide, pesticide, and fungicide free. So it's organic. And instead of spraying weeds with poison, they will select and grow companion plants with their vines. And this will like outcompete the weeds. And also those companion plants will fix the nutrition that's in the atmosphere. And it's going to help break up compacted soil. And they're, they've got, you know, bugs, which are good. So different bugs will come to these different plants. So having a companion plant is actually a really good way to avoid using pesticides i mean everyone needs a friend i mean companions are great for humans animals plants it's true um maybe even rocks okay so there are generally a lot of poisons that are used to get rid of pests however another thing that they do like say you've got some bugs that you don't want to have around your vines use natural predators like ducks ducks love snails they're gonna eat them so they use Wouldn't animals. ducks also like grapes? I don't think so, because they have ducks oh. on their, um, in their vineyard. God, that would just be weird, going to, like, a vineyard tour and just seeing, like, hordes of ducks. <laughs> just, I'm imagining, like, hundreds, maybe even thousands of ducks just, like, swimming through the vines <laughs> and sneaking all around the, the vineyard. Because vineyards are big, so I'm just hordes of ducks. I don't think it's that many, but can you hear the quacking? I hear it in my brain now. Have the lambs stopped screaming, Clarice? (laughs) Have they? I don't know. Um, Anyway, okay, so this wine is 90% Syrah and 10% Cabernet. So it's a blend, but like, (laughs) it's mostly Syrah. Um, It's sourced from the best organic vineyards across the Western Cape, and a quarter of it comes directly from the Reniki estate. 
So then the grapes were sorted, destemmed, and a wild, spontaneous fermentation took place in this combination of concrete tanks and open-top stainless steel fermenters, which they used the submerged cap fermentation technique. And I had to look that up because I had no idea what it meant the first time I read it. But what that means is you keep the cap of the skin submerged throughout the entire maceration process to create wines with more intensity and better balance. So again, with their idea of wanting to create wines in in the old-fashioned way, or however you want to say it, but just in very organically, this is the fermentation technique that they used. So 25% of the wine spends eight months in older oak barrels, and then it is assembled uh, with the rest of the wine and then bottled. So it's an interesting technique where they just take a fourth of it and put it in those oak barrels. So this wine, the nose has a distinct freshly ground black pepper character along with black currant, thyme, and tobacco aromas. So it's, you know, a pretty intense smoky wine. There's also a light perfume of violets. And the palate, once you taste it, it's well-balanced and structured with juicy, fresh tannins and a dry finish, distinct notes of red fruit, cassis, and plum. And all of this creates a very complex and enjoyable wine. And that very limited oak contact, so that 25% of the whole, makes this a very smooth and approachable wine to drink right now. So if you buy this wine it's good to drink now until like 2020. So it's not one that you want to age. Now is where it's at its prime. Makes sense. So with that, I'm going to give it an open. It is a screw top and um, it does have all of these, you know, made with organic grapes. It's certified organic by C-E-R-E-S. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that or anyway, but so it's officially organic. Nice. Okay, according to Sarah's, according to Sarah, according she to said Sarah, it was organic. She said it was, and it is. Okay. Well, your wine sounds amazing, and I wish I had a glass of it, but instead, today I am drinking a bottle of Cupcake Red Velvet. Oh which, my god, Tyler. Yeah, I'm taking it back old school. <laughs> This is the one, remember when I posted that video of me when I was 23? Oh my god. (laughs) That's the wine I talked about. (laughs) It was the cupcake. I did not realize that until just now. Yeah. But, um, okay, so Brittany had this and she was 23, so it was okay. (laughs) And she liked this one. Um, I've never actually had cupcake red velvet. I think I've had cupcake... Cupcake was never one that I gravitated towards much. Uh, one of my friends, her favorite wine in the world is the Cupcake Moscato Diasi, which is the sparkling Moscato. And it's really sweet, but it's a really easy wine to drink. And we had a bunch of girls' nights with many a bottle of that. And I think I've had the Cupcake Cab, and I'm sure I've had, you know, maybe a basic uh, Pinot Noir of theirs served to me. But I don't think I have ever had the Red Velvet blend. Yeah. And fun fact about Cupcake, this year they just started releasing canned. Um, They do a canned Sauvignon Blanc and a canned Rosé. I love canned wine. I am all about it. 
I've only had one, one time, where it tasted, like, very aluminum and wasn't a fan. But I think it was just that specific wine. Because I've had others, and I really enjoy them. To me, that's, like, the perfect form to take them out. Like, if you're going uh, boating on the lake, or you're gonna lay by the pool, like, canned wine is perfect. You keep it in the cooler, and, I mean, it's literally a half a bottle of wine in a can, but it doesn't look like, you know, no one's judging you because you're putting a whole bottle to your face. <laughs> I do that, but, you know, it's just like, oh, I'm drinking a can. Well, but you drink two cans and you're good. You're so good. Um, I also really love canned wine. And every time I go to the store, there's more and more brands who are coming out mm. with canned wine. I think um, Apothic. They either have cans or small bottles. I think they're cans. I don't know. So I've seen, I actually recently saw, um, it was like a Facebook ad for um, mini bottles of wine that are like one glass of wine each. And I was like, no, I I don't want to carry like three of these little wine vials around (laughs) with me. That's true. Um, But anyways, Cupcake, it is a wine brand that many of us had in college um, or, I mean, after college, when we were ages such as 23, so it's okay. <laughs> um, I was but, definitely still in college, but okay. Okay, well, fair. Um, but this wine is, obviously, it's a blend, uh, because it's red velvet. That's not a grape. It's a blend of Zinfandel, Merlot, and Petite Syrah. It's not a grape. It's a cake. <laughs> <laughs> it's cake. It's actually um, chocolate cake with red food coloring. Let me tell you how confused I was when <laughs> I searched cupcake red velvet and wine is not the first thing that popped up. <laughs> it took me a hot second to be like, oh, right, that's a food. Um, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> but no. So also, while you might think cupcake red velvet, oh, damn, is he about to drink a sweet red? I'm not. Zen Petite Syrah Merlot, they're not sweet wines. So be good. So this wine is made of 100% California grapes. This is a very rich and silky wine, and it has notes of cherry, blackberry, chocolate, and a mocha taste. And it also has these hints of vanilla and toasted oak, and it has a really intense and lengthy finish. It pairs really well with, like, seared steaks, maybe even like a hoisin steak grilled bacon cheeseburgers, or if you're going dessert side, s'mores, or like a dark chocolate fondue. I mean, I just really want a bacon cheeseburger and some s'mores right now. Every time you'd say a wine goes with a bacon cheeseburger, I'm like, yes. And you know what else goes with a bacon cheeseburger? My mouth. Me. (laughs) I go with a bacon cheeseburger. I am a bacon cheeseburger. (laughs) But this one is also a screw top. Smells like wine. I mean, I'm glad. Glad it doesn't smell like bleach. Oh my. I don't know what I would do (laughs) if I smelled a wine and just got a whiff of bleach. I mean, but I would suggest not drinking it. Well, I mean, I might taste it. Honestly, it smells like Apothic. I would say that's probably a good comparison. So if you've had um, Apothic... I don't know, red. Yeah, it's their red like their, blend. Their basic red blend. Smells very similar to this. 
I don't know. I haven't had apothic in like three years, but when I stuck my face into the glass, immediately that's what my brain thought of. Apothic? Well, my brain, yeah. when I stick my face into this glass, it definitely smells like smoked tobacco and blackberries. It's very interesting. It's like a campfire with dark fruits. Do you put tobacco on your campfires? People smoke at campfires. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, let's cheers and try our wines. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Honestly, and flavor notes, I'm thinking Apothic too. It's definitely more of a subdued red, so very much is not very heavy tannic. It is that silky smooth. I get some of those less fruity flavors like the mocha and the chocolate in it. Definitely some of those dark fruits, although I think in almost any red wine I taste dark fruits. Most, a lot of them have dark fruits. I was about to say most, but it's not most. It's just, but a lot of them do. Um, I absolutely am getting this plum and um, I'm tasting some blackberry on this as well, but it's very much overpowered, I would say, not in a bad way, but overpowered by this black pepper and smoky tobacco notes that it has going on. And it's smooth, but it's not as smooth as I thought it would be based on the description I found. Um, I can see why you want to drink it now. It doesn't taste like a wine that needs to age to taste better. It's a good wine. It is one that is best paired with food. I would say this one would go fantastic with barbecue or like a smoked meat or like a hearty steak or something like that would be perfect. It is a wine that I do think would be better with some food, um, especially to have like that fat in your mouth for it to help wash away and to combine the flavors with that. It's a good one, but um, if you get it, have it with your dinner. Yeah, this one, I mean, definitely I would drink it with a steak or cheeseburger, you know, like a not super duper fatty meat, uh, because again, it doesn't have the heft to really, uh, and the tannins to really stick to that fat. But, um, honestly, to me, this is one of those wines that would go really well with nice kind of fancier homemade burgers, brioche buns, all that fun shit. But this could also go great if you like get home from work, you're exhausted, you kick your shoes off, you Uber eat some McDonald's, and you have a glass or a bottle of this. Or even just popcorn. Olivia Pope dinner. Wine and popcorn. Okay, well, I don't have popcorn, but I do have a bottle of wine. Um, so this is my dinner. It's my fruit shake. It's healthy. It has antioxidants. And, you know, just a lot of those, like, carbs to really get you going. So it's my health shake. Yeah, okay. Well, we've got our... Uh, Health shakes. Grape smoothies. <laughs> Ew, that mm-hmm. sounds gross. <laughs> <laughs> that really does. Honestly, maybe it's an unpopular opinion. I love wine. I think grapes are kind of gross. I know in the most recent Bottle Talk episode, we talked about munching on frozen grapes as a snack, which I feel like that's different. Frozen grapes like little baby popsicles. But like an actual grape, to me, is kind of fucking gross. Well, I love grapes. Um... It's like biting into an eyeball, so... Okay, okay, well, I don't bite into eyeballs, so I'm just going to always think... Well, you bite into grapes, so you know exactly what it's like. (laughs) Well, I'll just keep it with the grapes. Um, But now that we've got our wine, I think we should get into our cases. 
Okay. So I'm covering the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon. The sources I used were The Charlie Project, Paula Jean Weldon, The Mysterious Disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon, which was an article on coolinterestingstuff.com, which is a real website, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I believe it. <laughs> um, the Disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon from historicmysteries.com. And then also an article by Rebecca Robinson from the Bennington Banner titled After 60 Years, Students' Fate Remains a Legendary Mystery. Shit. Okay. Yeah. All of those are very engaging titles. Yes. So in this small, quaint town of Bennington, Vermont, it's really one of the last places that you would think would have multiple mysterious disappearances. But between the years of 1945 and 1950, five people vanished from the area. Damn. Five five people in five years. Yes. In Vermont. Yeah, in Bennington, Vermont. So victims ranged from an eight-year-old boy to a 74-year-old hunter. So there's like a wide spectrum. And arguably the most famous of the disappearances was that of Paula Jean Weldon. I just... That's like half the people that live in Vermont went missing. Basically, in five years. Maybe even more than half. Maybe. Maybe it was all of them. The state just had to be, like, repopulated in 1950. Completely. Yeah, they were like, hello? 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 Anyone? I want to move to Vermont. It's a dream of mine. One of them that's probably never going to be a thing. But I do want to move to Vermont, have, like, a log cabin, tap maple trees... Do all that shit. I want it. You want all of that? It would be really cool, arguably. I could sell maple syrup. I could call it Tyler's syrup. Ooh. I oh! <laughs> um, Don't. Okay, I'm. you're done. You're done with your maple syrup story. Okay, tell me about the Vermont disappearings. Okay, so... Aliens. In, <laughs> in 1946... Paula was 18 years old and a sophomore at Bennington College there in Bennington, Vermont. She lived with her parents and her three younger sisters in Stanford when she was not in school and in the dorms um, there on campus when she was. She enjoyed painting in oil and watercolor, um, pencil and charcoal sketching. She played the guitar and she was a very physically attractive woman with... um, a lot of experience hiking and camping. And on December 1st, she worked the breakfast shift and lunch shifts at the dining hall there on campus. And she came back to her dorm room in Dewey Hall and started chatting it up with her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson. So the two of them were just talking for a while. And then all of a sudden, Paula said that she was just going to take a study break and she was going to go for a hike on the long trail. This trail actually called the long trail ran for more than 270 miles and cut through the forests and the woods to north of bennington until it reached the canadian border that is a long trail it's very long but other than saying that she was going to the trail she didn't really tell elizabeth where she was headed or what her plan was she just said she was going for a hike she leaves campus shortly after 2 30 and was probably carrying little to no cash, and she had actually left behind an uncashed check that her parents had sent her for living expenses, so it's not like she was running away. Like, she was just going for a walk. 
Yeah, and this is the 40s, right? Yeah, 1946. I It's weird, because this... I guess you haven't given a ton of detail yet, but I'm like, oh, this could have also been in 2018. The entire story is going to sound like that. Several people spotted Paula on her way to the long trail, including a group of fellow hikers, and one of them warned Paula that the clothes she was wearing, blue jeans and a parka, were not warm enough for the hike. Because remember, it's December 1st in Vermont. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's snowing. Yeah. I don't know if it was snowing, but I think it always snows in the winter in Vermont. It's snowy, but uh, she went anyway and headed north. She seemed either underdressed for a walk in the woods or was only planning to be out for a short while. Shortly thereafter, a blonde, slight, red-coat-clad young woman was seen by a man named Danny Fagger. He was the owner of a gas station that at the time was across the street from the college gates, so this was the beginning of her journey. Fager said the girl ran up to the side of a gravel pit near the college entrance and then ran down it again and went out of view so later search parties would call a bulldozer over to sift through the gravel pit in the off chance that maybe she'd been buried alive but no evidence was found so paula continues and she was hitchhiking near the bennington campus when a passing motorist lewis knapp picked her up at about 245 she told him she was going to go for a hike on the long trail off of route 9 near glastonbury mountain knapp dropped her off on route 9 which was about three miles from her destination, and af- oh. after she thanked him, Paula headed for the trail. I'm surprised. So I guess I was thinking this was a trail that maybe ran uh, like in campus or beside it or something, and it would be something that would make sense if she was like, "Hey, I'm going to go on like a 20 minute hike." That no, she could just do that. Huh. This is actually okay, a f- so. This is weird. It's a fair distance from the campus. Several other people saw her that day walking on the trail, and the last confirmed sighting of Paula was around 4 p.m. when she spoke to a man on the trail and asked him how far it extended, and he told her that it went all the way up to Canada. That day, the sun set at about 5 p.m., and it started to snow a few hours after that, and it ended up accumulating three inches. Okay. When Paula didn't come home that night, Elizabeth just assumed she was pulling an all-nighter at the library. She really wasn't concerned um, until she woke up the next morning and she realized that Paula never came home the previous night. Her bed was still made, like everything looked the same, and Paula wasn't there. So Elizabeth is starting to really freak out and she notified the school authorities that Paula was gone. And at this time, Bennington students were required to sign themselves out if they planned to stay out past 11 p.m. And then they would check in with the school security officer when they got back, which I think is a really interesting thing that I'm honestly surprised campuses don't still do this. I know. Again, it's one of those things that I'm like, that sounds like a 2019 thing. Like, Absolutely. The only thing of your case that I'm like, hmm, that'd be a little red flaggy is the hitching a ride but in a college town especially one that's in you know a more rural area like this i mean yeah yeah so paula never notified campus that she was staying the night elsewhere or that she was going to come back past 11 so that's not something she did and yeah the college once they were notified by elizabeth organized a small search party to go look for paula somewhere on campus like maybe she's 
just in a building somewhere, fell asleep on a couch, like, who knows? When she failed to attend her classes the following Monday, Bennington College officials notified her family and then the police. Paula's mother reportedly collapsed from shock and was confined to her bed, while her father, W. Archibald, headed straight for Bennington from Stanford, and he he wanted to commence a search for their missing daughter. He was leading this search party in this quest. Gossip started to run wild on campus and throughout the small community, and theories for Paula's disappearance included things like possible suicide, amnesia, and murder. And the college officially closed for several days so that students and professors could help look for Paula, but they were not finding anything significant. Huh. Because my initial theory right now, you know, she's overwhelmed with finals coming up. Maybe she just, fuck it. It goes all the way to Canada. So do I. And she died of exposure. Yeah. I don't know. Well. Or maybe she committed suicide. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And that's the kinds of theories that are going around. And there was an extensive search done of the long trail and the surrounding environment. But it was not turning up any signs, and there was no body found, no Paula found. And the search was really hampered by the fact that Vermont at this time had no state police. So this what? this was all volunteer-based. And this, these various attempts to find Paula were self-directed teams that often went over the same ground several times. So in doing so, they were wasting time and energy. Eventually, officials from Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York stepped in to help, as well as firefighters and the National Guard eventually. And a lot of this was because of the influence of Paula's father, Archibald. He pulled some strings and got the other police forces from the surrounding states to come help. I'm still... No state police in Vermont. I mean, we joked about how there's like five people living there, but I mean, there's like... There's still people who live there. But no police in the 40s. And all the time previous. Which is crazy. Because the 40s, not that long ago. Less than 100 years. Yeah. So as the search continued, obviously there was some information about Paula that was, you know, put out in the community and to all these law enforcement officers who were helping. Paula was 5'5 with blonde hair and blue eyes. She had a grayish colored scar on her left knee a small scar under her left eyebrow, and a vaccination scar on her right thigh. Because do you remember that vaccinations used to give you a scar? There were some of them that you would have like an indention or something from where the vaccine went in. Why would I remember that I was born in 1993? I guess I didn't mean remember. I guess I meant did you know? No, I did not know that. Okay, well, it's an interesting just random fact. Paula also had a cleft chin and an upturned nose, and she was last seen wearing a red parka with a fur-trimmed hood, blue jeans, white top cider sneakers with heavy soles, and a small gold lady's Elgin wristwatch uh, with a narrow black band. Investigators initially believed that Paula had gotten lost in the mountains and died of exposure, so they had the same theory that you had. But as time passed without them finding any sign of her, they began to consider some other theories. Authorities started looking into Paula's background to see if maybe she might have left on her own accord. 
However, she never had a steady boyfriend, and she was a really good student. She was an art major, which I could have mentioned earlier when I told you all the art that she does, but that is that was her major. But she was actually becoming a little less interested in the subject at the time. She found herself being drawn to music and botany, and may have been thinking of changing her major at the time. Although... Okay. There were reports that she was somewhat depressed at the time of her disappearance. Her family and friends said she only had normal problems for a girl her age and that she was not unhappy enough to do anything drastic like commit suicide or run away from home. And this to me sounds like exactly what you were saying, like this normal depression that happens in college. I I think we all feel it at some moment in time where it's the pressure, the stress, the everything just gets to you. Well, and I feel like, you know, as much as we hope there would be signs that friends and family would see when there's people considering suicide, I feel like so often that's not the case. No. And, you know, that's why so often you hear they were such a happy kid, you know, we, we didn't see anything, we had no idea. And so I'm like, I don't know. That is true. A lot of the times, especially her family, I mean, she no longer lived with her family. Yes, she did when she would go back for breaks, but there's a lot that her family didn't see. So, yeah. and again, like I had mentioned earlier, she left all her belongings behind and her family stated that she was not the type of person to leave without some type of warning. There was no hard evidence or of foul play in Paula's disappearance. But many people believe that she was murdered and buried somewhere near um, or even on the long trail. Eventually, as more time is passing and nothing is being found, very strange leads started to materialize. This included a claim by a Massachusetts waitress that she'd served a really agitated young woman matching Paula's description. And upon learning about this lead, Paula's father just disappeared for 36 hours. Supposedly he was in pursuit of the lead, but it was a really strange move that eventually led to him becoming a suspect in her disappearance himself. Soon, stories began to circulate that Paula's home life was not nearly as idyllic as her parents had told the police. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I just got this image of, like, what if her dad had, like, kidnapped her, and she's being, like, held somewhere, and she, like, escaped and went to this restaurant, I guess, and didn't ask for help. So when the dad heard about it, he was like, oh, fuck, Uh uh-uh. Well. And that's what happened. There's nothing really known about his whereabouts, what happened, and, and all of that. And so apparently what had been going on with her family at the time, she had not returned home for Thanksgiving the week prior. She may have been distraught about some disagreement she'd recently had with her father. And for his part, as her father's hearing all of this coming out, he positioned a theory that Paula was distraught about a boy that she liked and that perhaps the boy should have been a suspect, not him. Which it's literally like, okay, dad, whatever. Like you're just, it's making him seem really suspicious. But on December 16th, so 16 days after she went missing, her father packed up his daughter's belongings and returned to Connecticut. But not before he, of course, 
um, lambasted Vermont for its lack of a professional police force. And he was just saying how irresponsible those who were heading up the searches were, especially the fact that no records had been kept of what they were doing for the first 10 days of the investigation. But again, it's like, dude, you came down to really help spearhead this investigation, or this, yeah, the investigation. There were no police. So this is just town people and college students and faculty searching like, what record-keeping are you expecting them to have? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. But damn. Because you have to wonder if, you know, if this exact thing had happened in Massachusetts, where they do have state police and stuff. Yeah. Would she have been able to be found? You know, would they have been able to coordinate the search effort and, you know, not go over the same areas? Because I really think that, I mean, people get lost in the woods. And just because someone's not found, I mean... It doesn't mean they're not there. It's it's not like it's a city park where you can actually cover every area. I mean, it's Appalachian Mountains. Well, and people go missing in forests all the time. And it can take years and years and years for one person to stumble across a body. Like, even if hundreds of people had been searching for all of that time like that's how vast these areas are i mean i really think unfortunately your case is going to be solved hopefully before too long but by a hiker stumbling across bones because to me the most likely thing is maybe she's going for this hike to clear her head she's walking maybe she like slips and falls down a ravine and hopefully she like dies on impact and you know it's a ravine so it's covered in snow and it's snowing that night or maybe she even like broke her leg and wasn't able to get out yeah yeah and potentially this isn't a crime at all however there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to it it could have been but again it's all circumstantial because there's no real evidence that was ever found well and the thing that you mentioned earlier you know she's wearing this red jacket that's a bright ass color. That's something you're going to be able to see in the snow or see, you know, even in the, like, you know, in any other season, a bright red coat, you're going to be able to see. So you have to think she's, she, there's a good chance she's not there. Yeah. And someone took her. Exactly. So Paula's disappearance was not overlooked by a ton of reporters all across New England. And so they all, of course, came to Bennington to cover the story. And the negative press the state received in the weeks following Paula's disappearance helped lead to the creation of the Vermont State Police in a legislative session in July 1947. So six months later, or like seven months later. I hate that so many things... And, you know, we, we've talked about it before, about how the reason there's things is because there needed to be that thing at one time. You know, whether yeah. it's a warning label that says, don't let your child chew on this electric cord, it's because that happened. Or, you know, don't operate this while drinking, it's because it happened. Yeah. I mean, even having a state police department, they have it because something happened. Something happened. Where they needed them and they didn't have them. Yeah. Well, as soon as Paula's father left, the out-of-state reporters also left Vermont. Although the banner, which was the paper there in Bennington, continued to cover the story as front-page news until late December. 
So for that full month. Volunteer search parties would continue to make expeditions on the long trail, but by early January 1947, harsh weather conditions and honestly a lack of hope ended their efforts. They, they stopped looking. And yeah. therefore, any evidence of Paula, if there ever was any, it was buried under the snow and the passage of time. I mean, yeah, at this point it's been... What, 72 years? Yeah, today. I mean, the case remained unsolved and was nearly declared cold until just 13 years after it happened, an unidentified skeleton was found in Adams. Investigators excitedly awaited the results of an analysis in the bones, only to find out they were too old to have been Paula's. So, once again, closure was not something that the Weldon family and investigators were getting. Um, After the Adams skeleton, no significant leads were ever uncovered. Which means, literally, like I said, no evidence was ever found other than the people that they talked to that had seen her throughout the day as she journeyed along the trail. That was all they had. And over the next decade, some local Bennington man twice bragged to friends that he knew where Paula's body was buried. However... He was unable to lead police to anybody, let alone Paula, and with no evidence of a crime, no body, no forensic clues, the case grew colder, and the theories grew stranger, including ones linked to the paranormal. An author there in New England, an occult researcher, Joseph Citro, came up with something he called the Bennington Triangle Theory, which he created to explain the disappearance of the five people between 1945 and 1950. And he said that their disappearance was linked to a special energy that attracts outer space visitors to that specific area. And so, you know, they took all of these people who went missing, Paula included, with them back to their world. I'm sorry. Have you ever even met a person who has been to Vermont? (laughs) Is that really where you think aliens are going to go and also just kidnap these five people from this small southern Vermont town? I mean, apparently they only go to various secluded forests and fields instead of just like plopping over New York City and zip like zapping up 10 people at once who are all being like, hey, this like group of friends out to brunch. Yoink. Yeah, that or no, a group like, of people waiting to cross the street, yoink. Honestly. People sleeping the in next, the park, yoink. The next CBS, like, fun comedy show. Ten young, hot, 20-something friends are abducted by aliens from the East Village. I don't know. Is it a reality show? <laughs> I hope not, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, no, uh, the, yeah, Bennington Triangle Theory, that's fucking dumb. Uh, no. I also cannot get over, like, why people are so obsessed with alien abductions. I mean, I am someone who absolutely believes aliens are a thing. Like, they have to be. Thousand percent. But I also have to believe that if they are advanced enough to, like, visit us, you know, so let's say 200,000 years more advanced than us. So they have the technology to zip around space faster than the speed of light, or at the speed of light, and they're just real patient. Because the closest star is four light years away, and if, I'm telling you, if you told anyone on Earth, hey, 
do you want to go maybe see maybe something? It's going to take you minimum four years. <laughs> Could be 80. Interested? They'd probably be like, fuck off. No. <laughs> probably. So whatever. So they're advanced enough that like they're coming here and they're coming here fast. At that point, they're probably going to be advanced enough to be able to get all the damn information and observations about us they want by like not even being visible to us. Compare it to us observing, like, uh, fucking Ant Hill or something. Like, when we're actually doing scientific shit, the important part of the scientific process is to not introduce biases and not, like, put your own shit in there because then you kind of fuck up your entire, like, experiment or whatever. I'm pretty sure these aliens that have spaceships that can visit us are gonna know that. And they're gonna be like, hey, let's, like look at them or we're two thousand years in advance let's like be invisible or some shit and like walk around them maybe there's an alien in your apartment right now sitting on your couch wishing you were watching netflix instead they're listening to this podcast that's just revealing all their secrets thanks for creeping me out you know i hate aliens uh totally believe in them but sci-fi has made me scared but what i wanted to say to you is how do you know the ants are unaware that we're staring at their hill you don't know that they probably see us think how terrifying that would be (laughs) (laughs) i mean i guess they're used to it i don't know they have like legends of the kid who threw a rock at their hill and killed like a third of their army (laughs) <laughs> I'm just thinking of like a bug's life. No, no, I'm thinking of ants with a Z. Ants was much better than a bug's oh, it was life. So Unpopular good. opinion. No, no, no. But a bug's life is kind of trash. Um, I like a bug's life, but ants by far better. Also, it said bitch, and I, as a child, I was like, yes. Because ants, ants was like Sony or something, and a bug's life was like Dreams Work, DreamWorks, Dreams Work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I don't know. They were different, oh. yes, but they came out at the same time. I read this inter- total, like, one-sentence sidebar. I read this article about movies that are, like, the same plot that come out at the same time. Because basically, like, two people got the story, and then, like, they had to, like, race to see who got it out. Like Armageddon and Deep Impact. Yeah, that was one of them. And also um, Friends with Benefits and um, No Strings Attached. Same Fucking thing. Oh, yeah. The one that had Justin Timberlake and the one that had Mila Kunis. Or was that the same that one? That was the I same one. There was one with JT and, and Mila Aniston. Kunis. And then the other one had Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. That, okay. So. But anyway. Um, yeah. Ants by far better. But. So. The Bennington Triangle. Aliens. You know. I mean. I, no. It could have been. I mean. Probably I mean, not. But Maybe. We can't I say it's not. I guess you're technically right. I can't say no, but I'm no. I, I to me no. She fell in a ravine. Or honestly, what I hope is that she was like overwhelmed with finals. Maybe she's depressed. She goes on this walk and she's like, "Fuck it, I don't have to do this anymore." And she's in Canada. And she maybe she's in Canada. Maybe she's in another town in Vermont. Because, honestly, it's the 40s. Like, if she dyed her hair and wasn't wearing a red coat, it's not like people have her picture. I mean, really. they, they did. They did have her picture. Oh, they, okay. had, they had well, camera they... stylers. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's not like they had lights in Vermont or electricity. 
No, okay, so she dyes her hair or, like, gets a haircut or whatever. It's not like there's a wide... I mean, there's not even a fucking police force. It's not like there is a wide distribution of these facts in her picture. So she very much could be... Maybe she lives in that town in Massachusetts. Well, and... And she was out having breakfast. She was having her pancakes at this diner. And the waitress did see her. But she... She left. She started a new life. Because honestly, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I think social security numbers were a thing back then. But I'm sure you could be like, I lost it. Can you give me a new one? I think it was 113 was my number. And, like, I feel like it was easy to get a new identity. Well, and honestly, they only really looked for her for like a month. I mean, she disappeared December 1st, and by the beginning of January, they had stopped looking for her. For Her father went back to Connecticut in the middle of December. And the case is not closed, but, you know, it it is officially still open to this day. Mm -hmm. But it's not like it's actively being looked at. And, again, to me, that short period of time absolutely lends a possibility to what you're saying, that she could have just gone somewhere else. I don't know. I really, I don't know how easy it would be or how difficult it would be to just start a new identity then. But I know it's something that can be done and is done today. It's still done. So I imagine before the internet, before a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean it. I'm sure it was a lot easier. You know, she's this young woman who has some college education. I mean, why not? Maybe she's still alive and she's... Cheryl Thompson living in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Also, if there is a Cheryl Thompson in Foxborough and you're not her, sorry. If there is and you are her, people are still looking for you. Just say, let people know. There's still family you have. Maybe your parents are gone, but there's still family looking. Paula Jean's disappearance remains unsolved and there has never been any indication of her whereabouts since 1946. And if Paula were to be found alive today, she'd be 90 years old. Okay, so, yeah, people are 90. So, that is the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon and how she literally disappeared without a single trace. Shit. Yeah, when I came across Paula's case, it's one where it's there is so much mystery wrapped into what happened to her and like i said you know in the middle of it you know it could be a crime it could be an accident it could be a murder it could be an abduction it could have been her father like literally we have no answers yeah and also just god how much your case happened in 1947 but still every single part of it feels like it could happen this year yeah, it did. Like, every single part, um, except for the fact that there wasn't a police department. Other than that, like, everything. Yeah, but, I mean, you replace not having one with maybe an incompetent one, and boom. Same. Yeah. Like, but okay. That case was intense. Mine is also pretty intense. And mine is the case of the disappearance of the Sodder children. Oh my god, this one's crazy. Yes. So... The sources that I used here, and I'm going to pause after the first one because I want to sidebar about it for a sec. First one is episode 9 of BuzzFeed Unsolved, The Mysterious Disappearance of the Solder Children. I want to tell y'all, if y'all have not checked out BuzzFeed Unsolved, you have to. Dude, Ryan and Shane are my dudes. I 
love BuzzFeed Unsolved. I want to marry one and or both of them. All right, well, whichever one you don't marry, I will marry the other. Okay, fair. But no, they have, I think, like 80 episodes now. Um, There's a ton. They're on season nine. I think they do like two or three seasons a year. Um, But they are 15 to 30 minute episodes that go over unsolved cases from, um, you know, people's disappearances. They uh, did the Texarkana Moonlight Murders in one episode. Haven't watched that one yet. Really want to. Yeah. Um, They've done a couple others that we've talked about. And y'all, if you have not watched it, it's amazing. If you do watch it, hope you love it. Because we love it. Do you remember that time we binged, like, three seasons in one night? I think it was, like, a weeknight, too. And we were like, we couldn't stop. <laughs> yes, so we just good. sat in your living room and put it on YouTube on the TV and just kept watching. Yeah, I honestly want to go do that right now. So, I don't want to hear your case. Bye! <laughs> okay, bye. Thank y'all so much for listening. No, I'm just kidding. Yours, this is crazy. Um, I do want to hear your case. Yes. So, anyways, yes. That episode is The Mysterious Disappearance of the Solder Children. Episode 9 of BuzzFeed Unsolved. My other sources are an article from Historic Mysteries, The Solder Children Mystery by Doug McGowan. Hey, how the fuck did we both end up using Historic Mysteries? I've never even seen that goddamn source before. Oh, I didn't know you used them too. I blanked. Yeah. Probably because we don't do cases that are unsolved, so they're not mysteries. And then an article from the Smithsonian... The Children Who Went Up in Smoke by Karen Abbott. That which, is a fantastic title. I know. And listeners, I, you'll understand why when Tyler gets into this. Yeah. Also, I don't think I've used the Smithsonian as a source before. Feels a little intense. It was a really good article, though. I believe it. So, it was a normal Christmas Eve in 1945. Also, our cases happened two years apart. Just saying. Kind of weird. Yep, they did. That is weird. Um, so, it's Christmas Eve, 1945, and the Sauter family is living in Fayetteville, West Virginia. And except for the eldest son being away at the army, his nine siblings are enjoying the holidays at home with their parents, George and Jenny. So, they had ten kids, which is a lot. So, um, but nine of them so are home. Many kids. Oldest one's in the army, because it's... The 40s. Well, I mean, it's right after the end of World War II, but I feel like not everyone came home yeah. instantly. So. Yeah. So the kids there are Sylvia, who's two years old, Marion, who's 17, John, who's 23, George Jr., who's 16, Maurice, who's 14, Martha, who's 12, Louis, who's 9, Jenny Jr., who's 8, and Betty, who's 5. After saying it that many times, who's does not feel like a word anymore. Oh my gosh. When you said Sylvia at the beginning and she's two, and then you started going into like older kids, I was like, oh my gosh. So she sounds like she was unplanned. But then no, they like literally scatter the entire age range from two to 23. Yeah. And let's say the eldest is, I don't know how old he is. He's in the army. So let's say he's older than 23, he's 25. Yeah. So, I mean, damn. She was, like, pregnant for 25 years. I mean, there's a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 14-year-old. There's also, like, a 9-year-old, an 8-year-old. Like, that's a lot. You're her poor cervix. But, um, yes. So, when it was time for the kids to go to bed, 
you know, it's Christmas Eve. They open some of the presents. They are like, okay, kids, time for bed. Santa's going to come do his shit. And we'll open all the presents in the morning because they do exactly what we did, which is weird. Where they like opened some presents from each other and then in the morning open them from Santa. And I'm like, oh, that's scarily familiar. It's okay. I'm just glad Santa still comes, okay? I mean, same. <laughs> but five of the kids, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, asked for permission to stay up later than usual. And mom said, you know, sure, you can stay up a little bit longer, but just, you know, remember to turn out the lights, close the curtains, and lock the front door when you go to bed. So George and Jenny and the four other children went off to bed. Later, in the early hours of the morning, the phone rang. So Jenny, you know, hears it. Her bedroom, um, Jenny's the mom, and, you know, she hears it. Her bedroom's on the first floor, so she gets up, um, and she goes to the hall to answer the phone. And a woman is on the other end of the line, and in the background she can hear, like, a bunch of people talking. She can hear, like, laughing and cheersing, and it's just... Very confusing for a call to get in the middle of the night. Like from a bar? Like a bar, a party or something is what it sounds like. And the um, woman who's on the other line, she asked Jenny for someone that Jenny didn't know. So Jenny's like, lady, you have the wrong number. And then this woman gives a really strange laugh and hangs up. And Jenny's like, okay, what? Okay whatever someone had the wrong number they're drunk maybe whatever yeah she then notices after the call that the house is all quiet but the lights are still on the drapes are still open and the front door is unlocked so she's like god damn it kids like i literally asked you to do these three things and you can't even do that yeah but so she assumes they forgot she closed up the house she goes back to bed She's laying in bed, drifting back to sleep, and then she hears what sounds like something, like, landing on the roof. Like, something heavy hitting the roof and then rolling down the side of the house. And she's like, okay. Doesn't know what it is. Just like, whatever, I'm going to bed. You know, maybe a a branch fell from a nearby tree or something. About an hour later, she wakes up once again, and this time it's because there is heavy smoke curling into her bedroom under the door oh my god and at this point it's about 1 30 in the morning so she wakes up her husband george and they run to the door of the bedroom the hallway is filled with smoke there are flames covering the stairway that leads up to the children's bedrooms and so the two of them they shout up the stairs for her to get out of the house quickly you know the kids are on the second floor they're like jump from the windows like get out of the house the house is on fire once out in out front, once they're out of the house, they do a head count of the kids, and they realize that the five that stayed up late were not outside with the rest of the family. George, Jenny, Sylvia, Marion, John, and George Jr. had all escaped, but the rest of the kids who shared two bedrooms, which were upstairs, were nowhere to be found. So George, the dad, he runs back into the house to get the rest of the kids but the staircase is on fire and he he can't he can't go up it so he runs to the back of the house 
where his ladder is, and his ladder isn't there. Because they're on the second floor, so he's like, I'm going to use the ladder, I'm going to get up there. But it's not His ladder's there? not there. So he's freaking out. But then he's like, okay, he has these coal trucks that he uses for work. And he's like, I'm going to drive one next to the house and get on top of it and get to the second floor that way. He is and... able to think a lot in this, like, dire situation. Oh my... Yeah. He is... For how panicked I imagine any parent would be, he has enough focus to think of, like, some very legitimate solutions. <laughs> yeah. So he goes to his trucks, and he goes to the first one, and it doesn't start. So he goes to the second one, and it doesn't start. So while he's doing this, one of the children, Marion, runs to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. When she gets on the phone... The operator just never picks up. This is literally so, like a slew of bad luck. Like, what the actual fuck? It is certainly a slew of something. I don't know if I'd say it's bad luck or something worse. Or someone had a very articulate plan. Yeah, because then Marion runs to another neighbor's house. Same thing happens. No operator. The operator, I wonder, because again, it's... You know, one thirty in the morning, Christmas morning, in the 40s, maybe the operator's not there? I don't know how operators work. I don't... I assume, though, there would have to be someone. Someone at the switchboard, otherwise you can't call anyone. But, yeah. So, the second neighbor, you know, she goes to the second neighbor's house to try. No answer. The second neighbor runs to the nearby fire department and found the fire chief, F.J. Morris... But even though the fire department was only two and a half miles away, it took firefighters seven hours to get to the the house. Why? I don't know. There wasn't a reason given. And it, it's one of those that, I'm like, you found the fire chief. It's not like he needs to round up everyone. I feel like the fire chief could have gone over there. And, you know, maybe it's one fireman and the dad and maybe some neighbors and the mom and, you know, the older kids holding up the hoses. I know. Sure. I forgot this much crazy stuff happened. Yeah. I knew this one was crazy, but I forgot how crazy. So the house only burned for a little over an hour. By that point, it was ash. So when it took seven hours for the firefighters to get there, you know, they get there at like 830 in the morning. There's nothing. That is fast to go from fire to ash. Yeah, and it's, to me, suspiciously fast. But authorities excavated the ash looking for the remains of the five missing children, but they couldn't find anything, and they were presumed dead. The fire chief saying that, you know, the fire probably burned so hot that they just burned up. The basement of the house was still there, but George covered it up to create a memorial for his children. The fire was deemed to have originated from bad wiring in the house. And just a week after the fire, the Fayetteville coroner's office issued death certificates for each of the children. But George and Jenny were not satisfied with this explanation that the fire just, you know, this wiring was bad and the fire just burned the house down. 
And they wanted an in-depth investigation to thoroughly explain how faulty wiring and just how all of this could have caused this fire if the wiring was to blame. Why, when Ginny woke up, when she answered the phone, first off, how could she have answered the phone? Because if the faulty wiring was to blame, there wouldn't have been power to the house. Right. So how, not only was she able to answer the phone, but she noticed that the lights were still on, that she had to go and turn them off. And also later they would say how the, you know, they turned on the lights when they realized the house on fire. So if there, if it was an electrical thing, how? That wouldn't have been possible, like, yeah. Yeah, how is there still power to the house? And they suspected that there's a lot more here to be discovered and there were a lot more answers needed. Like, clearly, something's not adding up. Like, I have so many questions right now, I don't even know where to begin. So, I'm going to take it back a little bit. A little bit of background on George Sauter. So, he was born in Sardinia in Italy in 1895, and he immigrated to the U.S. in 1908 when he was 13. His older brother had accompanied him to Ellis Island, and immediately returned to Italy. So, George was on his own. He worked in on the Pennsylvania railroads. He carried water and supplies for the workers. And after a few years, he moved to West Virginia. He was known to be very smart, very ambitious. He first was a driver, and then he launched his own trucking company. So, he'd haul dirt for construction. Then he would later haul, like, freight and coal, which is why he had his coal trucks. One day, he walks into a local store, and he met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, um, who'd come over from Italy when she was three. The two of them fell in love, and they got married, and they had ten children between 1923 and 1943. So many children. And they moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia, which is this small West Virginian town in the Appalachians, and has a small but very active Italian immigrant community. And the Sauters were, a, you know, a very well-respected, middle-class, average family. George was known to have very strong opinions about things, especially Mussolini. He had very negative opinions on Mussolini and what he'd done to Italy, Mussolini uh, was the leader of Italy during World War II and cited Italy, like, was very fascist, cited Italy with the Nazis, was not a good dude. Um, and George did not like Mussolini. And a lot of people in town did. You know, a lot of the um, Italian immigrants did not like their leader being talked down to like this right. by just this guy. But one thing George never talked about was his youth or why he'd left Italy or what made him leave. So there are always a lot of theories and rumors that flew around. You know, maybe he, his family had connections to the mafia. Or, you know, maybe he didn't like Mussolini because he'd done something or his family had done something and that's how he'd left. Or that's why he'd left. Yeah. But he never talked about his youth. So after the fire, the Sodders planted flowers across from the space where their house had been. And then they began to stitch together this, just all of these different odd moments 
that had happened before the fire. One of the things was a stranger had come to the home a few months before the fire and asked about getting work hauling things, which, you know, okay, it's a small town. George owns his company hauling things. Okay, this isn't that weird. But this guy walks around to the back of the house and looks at the fuse boxes and says, this is going to cause a fire someday. Which is weird, because at the time, George was like, no, we just had the wiring checked by the power company, and, you know, it was all good. Literally, the fall before the fire, power company had come out, checked the wiring and the fuse boxes, and given the all clear. Wow. And this rando guy is, like, looking at the fuse boxes, like, hmm, it's gonna burn it down. Around the same time, another guy had come to the house to sell the family life insurance money, and when George was like, no, and the it was clear that the sale was not going to happen, this guy just became livid, and he started screaming, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty marks you've been making about Mussolini. So, Clearly, first off, people are out to get him. Yeah, well, first, literally, I'm like, okay, this guy is saying your house is going to burn down, you're going to lose your children. I'm like, this is very suspicious. Yeah, I'm thinking this guy, like, <laughs> we need to find this guy. As, um, as Shane and Ryan put it, it's like the third act of a student film where they just need to cram all the plot material into the dialogue. Because I'm like, yeah, that's and that's exactly what happened. Hmm, who looks suspicious? Exactly. But at the time, George did not take this guy's threat seriously. No, I mean, he sounds like just someone who's irrational and upset and just saying, like, the angry things that come to mind. Like, I feel like it would be hard to take someone like that seriously in the moment. No, and also, I could see making some kind of weird connection of like, oh, he's a life insurance person. He's saying we're going to die because he wants to sell us life insurance. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. That would be weird because you don't put life insurance out for your, or like on your kids, but whatever. Another weird thing that they stitched together was one of the older sons had seen something really weird. Just a few days before Christmas, he'd notice a man parked along the highway watching the younger kids as they came home from school. So they have all these just weird events happening, you know, in the lead up to the fire. And afterwards, they they just have so many questions and so many suspicions. So first and foremost, one of the weird things after the fire is, you know, there's no human remains anywhere. You know, they sifted through the ashes. They found no skeletons. And so Jenny, the mom, went to a local crematorium and asked them about what does it take to to burn people. And the worker told her that it took at least two hours burning at a very high temperature for a skeleton to disintegrate. But the fire at their house was a house fire, and it burned for less than an hour, so There should have been five skeletons there if the five kids had died. Yeah, I mean, and the fact that absolutely nothing was found seems like they, like, how were they there? If the fire only burned for a little over an hour, 
and it takes much longer than that to burn bones to dust. Like, that's just science. And even when you do burn bones to, like, nothingness, there are still bits and pieces left. Like, I keep thinking of making a murderer and, like, Stephen Avery and, like, the little bits of bones that were found. Yes. Yeah. Well, and even in crematoriums who, you know, have these hot-ass furnaces that burn much hotter and much longer than any house fire. I mean, if you get the ashes of a loved one, there's gonna be bits. Like, it's <laughs> it's not just ashes from a fireplace or, like, sand like you see in a lot of um, movies and stuff. I mean, sorry to burst your bubble, there's bits. The space is a bone because the hottest fire can't completely get rid of everything. It would have to be, like, I don't know, an ex- dragon fire. Dragon fire and ex- from Basarius. An explosion, oh. a meteor hitting the earth, and you happen to be I in mean, that it, spot. It or like a chemical fire. Yeah, like there are fires like, that can completely yeah. but incinerate. like a house fire, just a general house fire, or something. It's, no, it's not going to happen. No, and so it like this just doesn't make sense. Not at all. And so George and Jenny are collecting all this evidence and they're speaking to people and a lot of what they're finding points away from what the authorities told them. A telephone repair man told them that it, their phone lines appeared to have been cut, not burned by the fire. Not that they tried the phone because the house was on fire when they right. like, woke they up. They weren't going to call anyone to tell them that. But their phone lines had been cut and... Again, they realized that if the fire had been electrical and faulty wiring, the power would have been dead. Also, a witness uh, came forward and said that they saw a man who was at the scene of the fire taking down this uh, block and tackle machine that's used for removing car engines. So, could that, you know, could that point to why the cars the, wouldn't start? The trucks didn't yeah. start? After the fire, one day when they're, you know, visiting the site of their former home, Sylvia, one of the daughters, found this hard rubber object in the yard. And, you know, that reminded Jenny of hearing the thing hit the roof and then roll down the side. When George saw that, he he knew what it was. He'd seen it before in the war. And it was, it looked to him like it was an a napalm pineapple bomb. Oh my god, and it just hadn't gone off? Or maybe it had. Oh. And it was what had caused the fire. Oh. Like, you know, it, it could have just been, like, the casing or something. I don't know what a pineapple because... bomb is, but I'm assuming this so, is... Like, I'm assuming he knows this shit. Yeah, I'm imagining... I also don't know what it is, but I'm imagining... Oh, wait, a grenade! ...being a... Well, it being like a firebomb, so not one that explode explodes, but one that explodes for fire. So, oh. you know, you're still going to find a large piece of it that's not, you know, exploded, shredded or whatever, because it's not that kind of explosive. Right. And honestly, to me, I'm like, every every single thing I'm hearing is like, someone burned your house down, dude. Yeah, that's exactly what it and sounds like. They also came across a bus driver who said that he had seen what he described as fireballs that were being thrown at the roof of the house. You know, that could have been these napalm bombs. 
a woman who was familiar to the Sauter family also said that, you know, the night of the fire, while the house is still burning, she clearly saw the five children in a strange car drive by her. And she knew the family. So she didn't just see five rando kids. Right. Which also, I'm just saying, it's a small town in West Virginia. It's like two in the morning at this point, if the house is still burning. Who the hell is going to have their five kids in a car at two in the morning on Christmas in the small-ass town in West Virginia? That alone is suspicious. And this woman knows what the kids look like. And she's like, that was them. Also, at a diner 50 miles west of Fayetteville, a waitress said that the next morning, the day after the fire, she served breakfast to five kids. But she couldn't really remember how many adults were with them. And the five kids matched the description of the Sauter kids. Oh my god. So word spread and photographs of the kids were shown in the area. And a woman said that she saw four of the kids, not all five of them, but four of them with four adults at a hotel in South Carolina. So all of these sightings and this evidence, it it gave George and Jenny hope And it caused them to pursue their own investigations and forensic experiments. Jenny burned chicken and beef bones in an oven and in a fire to see, could these be destroyed completely by a fire? And every time she would do these experiments, you know, she'd make it hotter. She'd do it for longer. The bones were intact. George also went around investigating other house fires and ones that houses had burned completely to the ground that people had died in. Yeah. That had complete intact skeletons in them. So with these facts, the two of them went to the police and demanded to have the fire investigated. But the police refused. Oh my god. They said the coroner's inquiry said that it hadn't been a crime. So when the police said no, they were like, Fuck you guys. We're going to keep trying. Yeah. We're going to find our own fucking answers. Because clearly their children did not die in the fire. Like, it didn't Mm -hmm. happen. And there were also in the fire, you know, it was basically all brought to ashes, but there were still, like, appliances in the kitchen and stuff in the basement. Like, not everything burned. Yeah. You know, even if it had been a napalm fire, like, you know, a very hot chemical fire, not everything burned you know it still would not have been hot enough to vaporize bone yeah so in 1947 two years after the fire george and jenny attempted to get the fbi involved in the case they contacted the fbi and they believed their kids were still alive and the fire had not been an accident and the fbi agreed to offer their help but the local authorities, the police and fire, refused their help. They said, nah, we don't want the FBI involved. Can the FBI not trump so, them? I guess not really. The state has not, to invite the FBI, right? Yeah. Oh my god. In this god. case, they, they blocked them. They are like, nope. So next, the Sodders turned to a private investigator, a man named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that The life insurance salesman who had threatened George in the fall just a few months before was on the coroner's jury that determined the fire was an accident. So this guy who was like, 
fuck you, your house is going to burn down, your kids are going to die, was also one of the people that was like, this house fire that I went to, you know, this house that I went to a couple months ago and said it was going to burn down, the kids are going to die, and it burned down and the kids died, this was an accident. Oh, no. Same person. No, no, no. Yeah. That is such a red flag. Oh, my gosh. Private investigators are, they blow my mind. They're in like uh, in like yeah. an amazed and creeped out way, where it's like, oh my god, you can't hide anything from a PI. They fucking know. Oh yeah, the private investigator also heard a story from a minister in town that F. J. Morris, the fire chief, had told people that he discovered a heart in the ashes. What? And he'd hid it in a dynamite box and then buried it at the house. Like a human heart? Yeah. So, like, the the bones burned, but the heart was there? Yeah, I was like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. It doesn't. That's that's some weird, like, fucking fantasy movie shit. Yeah. No. Um, So, they're like, what the actual fuck? You found, like, a body part? So, the investigator persuaded Morris to show them where he'd buried this heart and they dug it up and they took it to the funeral director who looked at it and was like y'all this isn't a heart that was recovered from a fire it's a beef liver that's never even been in fire what is it oh my god like a liver from a cow soon after that they heard rumors that the fire chief told people that the contents they found in the box hadn't been found in the fire at all and that he'd buried you know this beef liver there in hopes that you know they'd find it and it it would placate them you know they'd stop the investigation because they'd finally they'd find this body part and be like oh there it is i guess our kids did die in the fire because we found this heart liver liver." no (laughs) like no that would just be fucking weird over the next few years Tips and leads continued to come in. George saw a photo in a newspaper of school children in New York City. And one of the kids in the photo he was convinced was his daughter, Betty. So he drove to Manhattan to find this child. And when he found the kid's parents, they refused to even speak to him. So that became a dead end. In August of 1949... They decided to mount a new search at the fire scene, and they brought in a pathologist from Washington, D.C. The excavation was thorough, and it did uncover several small objects, including, like, damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary, and then several shards of vertebrae. What? So, the pathologist sent these bones to the Smithsonian, and the report they said that you know, the bones found it was four vertebrae shards that belonged to one person. And, you know, they were able to age whoever it was. And they found that whoever these belonged to must be between 17 and 22 years old. And the oldest child that was supposedly died in the fire was 14. Oh. And the, the, the skeletal maturation that went on would not be seen in a 14 year old i mean technically it is possible but 
you would not see this. So, what about the brother that was in the army? We haven't talked about him since the beginning. I have no idea. It never really goes into him. I mean, I guess he wasn't there. I don't even know. He might have died in the army. I have no idea. Oh, wow. So, we don't even know if he found out about what happened to his family. I Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he did. I'm sure if he died in the army, it would probably have said something in the source. But it literally never said anything about yeah, him. Yeah, weird. But the report from the Smithsonian also said that these bones didn't show any evidence that they'd been in any kind of fire. And Wait, so they were just, like, also, planted there? Well, I'm getting okay. there. So the, the bones did not show any kind of, like, you know, burning or anything. And also, just the condition they were in, the Smithsonian was like, look, you would have found more than this. Like, more than just the vertebrae. This doesn't... Yeah. And basically, they confirmed what George and Jenny had been saying in that, you know, if the house burned for a half hour, 45 minutes, you would find full skeletons of five children. And you didn't. You just found four vertebrae unburned. Which is not enough. Yeah. So the report concluded that most likely these bones were from the supply of dirt that George used to fill in the basement. And could have been from an old, you know, ancient burial or just anything. That is really creepy, actually. To think about the fact that dirt that you just used to fill a hole could have human remains in it. Bones in it? I know. Yeah. Because I'm like, when I was reading it, I was like, hmm, well, maybe it was like animal vertebrae. I feel like the Smithsonian would have been like, nah, that's from a deer. Like, that would have been it. That would have been the one I was one expecting an animal. When you were saying, like, but, they submitted the bones to the Smithsonian, I thought it was going to come back, like, and they're bovine. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if maybe the there wasn't... Because, again, this is before DNA. True. And maybe because it was just shards of the vertebrae that they were able to see that these were fused, and they know in people that happens when you're 17 to 22. So they're like, oh, cool, well, if... This wasn't one of the kids. Also, you would have found more. And maybe also in fucking cows, like, their vertebrae fuse and shards of cow vertebrae look like people. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah. I was not a scientist in the 40s. What? I know. I know. It is is my time to come clean. I was not a scientist in the 40s. But you were more of a scientist than I am today, C2O. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) That is fair. So, the bones they found, they weren't a match. So still, after even more thorough and careful searching, there are no bones from this fire. That's because they weren't so, there. I'm just saying. Like, they did so yeah. much investigation because I know that, like, the coroner was like, nope, died in the fire. And they're like, literally no. Literally no. So in 1950... The governor of West Virginia called a hearing at the West Virginia State Capitol and declared the case officially closed. And I don't understand why. What? Like, to me, there's there's not new evidence that came about. There's not a closure, but he declared it closed after five years. George and Jenny, though, they, they were like, fuck you, governor. We're not going to stop. Basically. Like, we know there is something the fuck going on. So they put up a billboard near the side of their house on the highway, and it showed photos of the five kids and said, you know, a $10,000 reward 
for the safe return of their kids. And ten, this ten thousand dollars in the in nineteen fifty. That's a lot of money nowadays. That's I don't know. I feel like buying power is something like forty or fifty thousand, maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. But ten thousand dollars seventy years ago is a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money today too. But George and Jenny, they thoroughly believed that their children were alive and had been taken from the house and the fire had been set on purpose to cover their tracks and this kidnapping. So time passed and they and the surviving children continued to search. So in 1968, 23 years after the fire, Jenny got an envelope in the mail. It was postmarked Kentucky, didn't have any return address, but was addressed to her. Inside this envelope, there was a photograph of a young man, and on the back of it was written, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132, or 35. Louis Sauter was one of the her children that supposedly died in the yeah. fire. And authorities thought that this must have just been a cruel hoax, but... George and Jenny thought, they looked at this photograph and like, that looks like Lewis. That looks like how he would look as an adult. And to be fair, when you look at pictures, like when you have, your friend shows you the baby pictures, it scarily looks, you're like, oh shit, yeah, that's you. I know. And Lewis was 10 years old. You're gonna see some resemblances. When, I mean, a, pic, a 10 year old, or a picture of like a person in there you know, late 20s, early 30s, and a picture of a 10-year-old of that same person. You, you can tell. You can, well, and... You know, people look similar. They do, and I feel like especially men. Because I'm just thinking of, like, yeah. you as a 10-year-old and you right now. Yeah, I would have no problem knowing it's the same person. Me at... I mean, I also have a buzz cut, and so I have the exact same haircut <laughs> I had as 10-year-old. Maybe that's what's but... doing it. Um, But no, like a picture of me at 10 and me now... You could still tell it's me. There would be a lot more differences, but you could still tell it's me. I mean, yeah. And especially for... Because there's things like your eyes. That's not going to change. The general shape of your face and stuff is not going to change. Yeah. Like, you can tell. So, you know, authorities are saying it's a hoax. And they're like, I don't think it is. Your weight might change. Like, <laughs> this looks like... <laughs> but no. They're like, this looks like our Yeah, son. they knew that was him. And so they are hopeful again. It's been 23 years since the fire, and they're oh, hopeful. God. They hire a private investigator to go to Kentucky. Because the the, um, the envelope was postmarked Kentucky. That's all they yeah. knew. Because it didn't have a return address. They hired this private investigator to go and track down whoever sent this photo and to find who this was. The investigator left West Virginia and was never heard from again. Did he just take their money? So, I don't know. It's not... Nothing in any of my sources ever said anymore. I That was my first thought, was he just took their money and ran. But I also can't imagine they gave a lot of money to him. It's, it's not like they... It's not like they paid him, like, a million dollars. Well, I mean, I don't know how much a PI costs, but even if they paid him 10000 that's still a substantial amount of money in the 60s. I mean, but is it enough to, like disappear completely 
If someone gave me $10,000 right now, if someone gave me $50,000 right now, that is not enough money for me to, like, disappear, especially if I, like, own my own business. True. Like, I would need more money than that. I'm sorry. I'm a bougie, expensive bitch. (laughs) Maybe he was kidnapped and murdered. Uh, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Honestly, I think he'd probably just skip town and left and just took their money and ran. Yeah. That's my theory. But, you know, he could have been killed by the same people that killed, you know, that kidnapped the kids. Because also, remember from the beginning, we don't know why George left Italy. And at the time, in Italy, you know, when he left, like, the early 20th, the early 20th century, you know, the mafia is very much a thing. True. So is this, is this a mafia case? Oh, I hadn't thought about and that, but is, totally. You know, he's very Italian, left Italy for some reason in the early 20th century, is not into Mussolini. Was this a mafia thing? True. So, investigator disappeared. George died the next year and never got a break in the case. Jenny erected a fence around her property and added more rooms to her house. And basically she was building just more and more layers between her and the outside. And since the fire, she wore black exclusively because she was mourning her kids. And she continued to do so until she died in 1989. After their deaths, the billboard came down. But their kids and grandkids continued the investigation and they came up with theories on their own. Maybe the local mafia had tried to recruit dad and he declined. Maybe they tried to extort money from him and he refused. Maybe... The children were kidnapped by someone they knew. Someone who came in the unlocked door and was like, the house is on fire. I'm going to take you someplace safe and kidnapped them. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe they were murdered. Maybe they were kidnapped and murdered that night. Maybe they were kidnapped and still alive today. And if it was really Lewis in the photo and he sent that... Maybe he failed to contact his parents and tell them the whole story to protect them. Right. So the last surviving solder child is Sylvia, who's in her late 70s now. She maintains that her brothers and sisters did not die in the fire. And when she has the time, she visits crime sleuthing websites and she chats with people who are still interested in her family's mystery. Her very first memories are from that night in 1945, when she was two years old. Oh no, that's horrible. She says she will never forget the sight of her dad bleeding, or the terrible symphony of everyone's screams, and to this day she is no closer now to understanding why. No one is. No. I mean, there's... There's no evidence, and it's it's one thing that there's so much no evidence that it, it rules things out. Right. I was about to say, it's really the lack of evidence in this case that is evidence, kind of. Exactly. Like, it's not a, did they die in the fire, really? Because, I mean, there are a lot of theories, even today, that say that, you know, the kids died in the fire, but I just... 
I've never heard of a house fire burning that hot. Well, and, the- and maybe if it was something that was a chemical fire or a napalm fire, you know, maybe because their rooms were on the top floor and that's, you know, the, the napalm hit the roof and that's where the fire started, that the fire was hottest there and could burn them completely before engulfing the rest of the house and, like, not burning other things. But to, but, to me, that just does not seem likely. But all five of them? Zero uh, exactly. trace of every single one of them? Like, I feel like if they had found one piece of some type of bone that they could connect to at least one of them, then that would make it a little easier to believe they all five died in the fire. But no. Well, and also, and it's super dark, but, like, no one ever talked about hearing them screaming. And I feel like if you are burning to death... You're gonna scream. You're gonna scream. You know, whether it is when the fire first starts, and, you know, because if the fire started up there, at least one of the five would have woken up and screamed for mom or dad, and not the two of them waking up from... In or not just mom waking up from smoke coming into her room on the bottom floor. Right, right. So to I just I cannot see any scenario where they were in the house and died there. To me, that just seems very improbable with the lack of evidence that is there. I agree. Well, with that, I think it's time to jump into postmortem. Agreed. I'm just going to say right off the bat, this one absolutely goes to you. Like, dude, the Sauter children is such an infamous case that the questions, the more I think about it, the more questions I have. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I I agree with you. I think my case was the more intense. I, I think your case, though, is going to stick with me more just because... Paula is someone, I had friends that were Paula. You know, in a lot of ways, when I was in college, I was Paula. Yeah. Like, it, it's a very... Relatable case. It's relatable, and it's something that it happened in the 40s, it happens today. It's something... And the la- the mystery on yours, to me, is almost more, because, you know, while in my case... We ju- you know, we just talked about how the lack of evidence is evidence. Yeah. In your case, not so no, much. No, the lack of evidence is literally the lack of evidence. Like, there's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, the fact with yours that we literally don't even know if it was a crime. And in mine, I guess legally, technically, we don't know it was a crime. Technically, it was closed as, like, they died in the fire. Right. But they did It was absolutely like, a crime. Li- there's literally no way they died in the fire. And it's not like all five of them jumped from the room and were like, you know what? Let's run into the woods and never come back. I know. No. They would have come to the other side of the house and been like, oh, mom, dad, we all like jumped out of the Well, room. and even if they had created such a pact between the five of them, someone would have broken at some point in time. That's yeah. too many so people. So they were, well, even if, and even if they were coerced into leaving, they're children. That's kidnapping. Yeah. So, you know, even if someone was like, you want to do this, it's for your parents' own good. And they were like, okay, you're correct. Well, yeah, they're children. The oldest is like 14 years old. So that's kidnapping. Totally. Well. So, no, I agree. um, But I really liked your case. I also liked, 
I love when we do cases that are less well-known and ones that, you know, is one I've never heard of and wouldn't have heard of. Right. I totally get what you mean. And I love it when you pick those two. One thing I really enjoy is when it happens so often that we'll pick a topic and then our cases will have things outside of the topic that are the same. Yes. It happens all the time and it always blows my mind. And like, there are unfortunately so many missing people that I don't even want to think about the number, but we both Mm -hmm. picked ones that happened that happened in the mid forties. Like how, how does that happen? And there were other similarities throughout, but yeah. So I will pick the topic for next week. I've got a couple of ideas. Um, And we'll just, you know, go from there. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We seriously appreciate it. We seriously love reading your reviews. Um, It's honestly one of the highlights of my day when one of them comes through or when a couple come through. Mm -hmm. But be sure to go leave us those five stars. Let us know what you thought. And we seriously super appreciate it. Absolutely. And while you're doing that, if you haven't, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, check out our website. You can subscribe to our website, email us, do all the things. But thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. Hope y'all enjoyed this episode. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.